own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a, deleg- a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt loses its, has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, that your spirit would would open our ears so we hear your word. As we see this difficult teaching of your son, that we would would recognize that the call to discipleship is, is, is a costly one. We'd recognize that Your son doesn't dispense cheap grace. That he doesn't ask for just a part of our lives, but that he asks for all of us. We pray that we would understand your word and rejoice in it, that you would give us a great insight into it as we look at it. And Father, that we'd be repentant. If there's any here who don't look to your son now, who are attempting to be the kind of disciple who, who isn't salty, who hasn't counted the cost, who isn't willing to walk away from everything, that you would bring them to repentance and faith in your son, Jesus. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, many of you know that, that I had the privilege and we at Sovereign Grace had the privilege of starting a missions organization called Radius International. And it's been an interesting start, and it's been interesting to watch it go. And we had one class of students who graduated, and we are bringing in the next class of students in January. The next class starts, I think, January 14th. Am I right about that, Joel? January 14th, I think, is their first day in class. Joel's one of the board members as well. And we started that missions organization for the purpose, for the purpose of training young people. By young people, I mean adults, young adults, who are going to get trained and become able to understand how to learn culture and language, a foreign culture and language, at the level of superfluency, understand worldviews, understand cross-cultural church planting, and who are then going to go and move to people groups, largely hostile people groups, to plant churches among largely Muslim, Hindu, and Buddhist people groups who've never heard of Jesus. They're going through an intense one-year I'm talking 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. sort of training in which they're getting the skill set 
so they can do the things that for most of us seem unthinkable. They're going to walk away from the American dream. They're going to walk away from all the comforts that we have, that we experience. They're going to walk away from their friends and their family. They're going to walk away from their talents and their gifts and their dreams and their goals. And they're going to go live among a people who they don't know. They're going to live among a people whose language is foreign to them, whose culture is foreign to them, and among a people who may be quite hostile to why they're there. And they will suffer, guaranteed, and they may pay with their lives. And that's what these students are signing up to do, and many of you are supporting. And we're appreciative that you're supporting that, and we're appreciative that students are signing up for that. And what's amazing about it is, as you hear that these students are going to do that, you think, man, that's extreme commitment. That is extremely mature discipleship. I want to submit to you today that's basic discipleship. It isn't really extreme commitment. It's basic to what it means to be a disciple. Not necessarily that everybody goes overseas and plants churches, but that our lives don't belong to us but to Jesus. It's basic discipleship. And these students understand that. In fact, I just read an email exchange with one of the students who's coming in in January who led a young woman to the Lord. She, she led a young woman to the Lord, is good friends with her, and that young woman is now getting married. And that young woman said, hey, my wedding is going to be in the middle of your training, and I would like you to be the maid of honor. Could you come be the maid of honor? And so knowing that the training is quite intense and that essentially we tell you to say goodbye to your friends and family for a year, other than one break that we give you in the middle, um, she emailed the staff and said, would I be able to leave the training for a few days so that I can go and be the maid of honor in this woman's wedding? And we had to email her back. The staff had to meet and talk about it. And they emailed her back and said, I'm sorry that, that because of the nature of the program and because of the timing, you won't be able to leave and go to your friend's wedding. And I wondered, as I read the email, I thought to myself, oh, we're going to lose a student. What a drag. What a big thing we're asking this girl to do. And the girl wrote back and essentially said, I understand. My friend understands. Still going to come to the program. I know I'll miss the wedding. And this is just the beginning of the cost that I'm going to have to pay. And people said, what a mature girl. Yeah. She's a disciple of Jesus. She counted the cost of following Jesus, specifically in the realm of missions. We don't often talk about the cost and counting the cost of following Christ. Do you even know there is a cost to follow him? Or do you think he's just something you can add to your already nice life? I have a nice life. I'd like to have a nice afterlife. Jesus would be a good thing to add so that I can have a nice afterlife as well. There's a huge cost to following Jesus, not just for missionaries, but as any disciple. That's why many reject Jesus. Sure, they might like Jesus, they may want benefits from Jesus, but when it comes to the cost of following him, they are not willing to pay the cost to follow Jesus. 
And Jesus addresses this cost of discipleship in our passage today. And I want to look at the passage today, and I want to think, I want to really walk through three considerations with regard to the cost of following Jesus as we do, or the cost of discipleship. So here's the first one. Becoming a disciple costs you everything. Did you hear that? Becoming a disciple of Jesus costs you everything. Now, I want to be clear. I didn't say becoming a disciple of Jesus might cost you everything or may cost you everything. I said becoming a disciple of Jesus costs you everything. It isn't a maybe. It isn't a hypothetical. It's an actual. It is a present reality. It does not, it, excuse me, it does necessarily cost you everything. You may not have to pay everything in a given instance. But the decision to follow Jesus, once you hear this, is the decision to open your hands, let go of the grip that you have on your own life, and say, Jesus, you're Lord. It's all yours. Do with it what you will. That costs you everything. It's not just a willingness to let him have your life someday. I'm not saying you have to be willing to let him have your life. You, in fact, have to let him have your life to be a disciple. It's saying now, no matter what, my life is yours. It is the settled disposition of the heart and mind that I have been bought with the price. My life is not my own. C.S. Lewis said it this way. The Christian way is different. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but I want to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones which you think wicked, the whole outfit. See, I want it all. That's what Jesus asked for. Look at Luke 14, verse 25 through 27, and we'll see that. Now great crowds accompanied him. This is Jesus. Now this is the height of Jesus' popularity. Jesus has never been more popular than he is now. The crowds have never been larger than they are now. They've never been more excited about this man who rebukes Pharisees, who teaches with authority, who heals the sick, who feeds the hungry. They've never been more excited about this miracle worker and teacher, and the crowds are enthusiastic. They are as big a crowd outpouring as there can be or ever was in the history of Jesus' ministry. Here it is. The people in this area of the world were never more excited about Jesus than they are right now. And the crowd, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said to them, and I'm going to tell you this, the exact opposite of what you would expect a preacher to say when his crowds are at an all-time high. Look what he says. If anyone comes to me, in other words, if you want to be my disciple, my follower, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot. 
He is not permitted. He is not able to be my disciple. Cannot be my disciple. It's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? Right off the top, if you're not willing to hate your own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, if you're not willing to hate your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Now, we understand that Jesus clearly doesn't mean that in order to be his disciple, you have to hate all the people around you. What, what is his point? What is his point? He clearly commands us to honor our father and mother. And here he says to hate them. Is Jesus talking out both sides of his mouth? Does he not understand a clear contradiction? We're supposed to love our wife. Here he tells us to hate our wife. Supposed to love our children. Here he tells us to hate them. What is he talking about? It's the same kind of statement when Jesus says, you cannot love both God and money. You can't have two masters. It's that your love for one is so great that the other, your love for the other, looks like hatred in comparison. It's that I love my wife, but not as much as I love Jesus. And if I went off to the mission field with my wife, and my wife lost her life so that we could make Jesus known, then because of my love for Jesus and my wife's love for Jesus, we're willing to pay that cost. If my children were lost because of my love for Jesus, it's a cost I'm willing to pay. I'm willing to have my father and mother and brother and sister and children and spouse turn against me and hate me because of my love for Jesus. I'm willing to pay that cost. Now, of course, Jesus commands you to still be kind to them and love them in return. But the point is, I'm willing to pay any cost for him. He far exceeds any relationship. And he not only far exceeds any relationship I have with others, he far exceeds the love I have for myself. I'll hate even my own self. My own life doesn't matter. You know where my dreams and goals and ambitions go when it comes to Jesus, they go in the trash heap because my dream doesn't matter anymore. My goals don't matter anymore. My ambitions don't matter anymore. All that matters is Jesus' dream. What does Jesus want? And I will submit everything about my life to him because I love him more than my own life. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus won't take your dream and somehow use it and sanctify it and work in it for his glory. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, that Jesus' primary method of working is not, hey, you tell me what your dreams and goals and ambitions are, you exalt those things, and then you baptize them with me, and we're all good. Jesus' call to the disciple is, you walk away from all of that, and I'll give you back what pleases me. Your whole life belongs to me, and I will give you back to you what pleases me, but you walk away from it all. In fact, he goes on to say, verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross. Now, when they hear this, they don't think about necklaces and trinkets, okay? The cross is an instrument. It's an instrument of capital punishment. It's the way that they humiliated and killed and put to death and punished 
the criminals of their society. It is the most atrocious way that they could think of at that time to suffer and die. It was a brutal way to suffer and die. And what Jesus is saying is, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You see, I'm going to go die on the cross for your sins. If you're not willing to follow me there, you can't be my disciple. If you're not willing to suffer for my namesake, if you're not willing to die for my namesake, you cannot be my disciple. Cannot be my disciple. If you aren't willing to walk away from your family, from your dreams, from your goals, from your hopes, from your comforts, from your own flesh, you can't be my disciple. I get it all. Or I'm not willing to take any of it. So what does that look like? We'll talk about that in a minute, but let's look at the last one, verse 33. So therefore... I want you to jump down there. So therefore, verse 33, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So Jesus is saying here is you can't have two masters. You can't love both God and money. You're going to have to choose. You have to renounce it all. Does this mean that you go down and make yourself a pauper and give away all your money? No, clearly it doesn't mean that. He expects you to be wise stewards. There's all kinds of commands throughout Scripture about how you handle your money. What's his point? His point is you have to come to the conclusion that Jesus matters more than all my stuff. I'm willing to walk away from all of it if he wants me to. In fact, I have walked away from all of it in my heart because I don't cling to any of it anymore. I cling to him and that stuff is there and what he lets me keep, he lets me keep. But that doesn't define me any longer. What does it look like? It looks like the Michigan State football player who though was a star football player who was being recruited heavily to come to the NFL believed God had called him into ministry and turned down offers to play in the NFL so he could go to seminary to train to be a pastor. Imagine that. Turned down the fame and the fortune of the NFL so he could go to seminary to train to be a pastor. What does the world think about a guy like that? Are you crazy? Yes, he is crazy. If Jesus is not raised, that guy is nuts, isn't he? But he believes he is. That is an extreme commitment. That's basic discipleship. Looks like Eric Liddell. You guys know who he is? If you saw the movie Chariots of Fire, you know who he is? who on his way to Olympic competition, on his way to the Olympics, finds out that his heat for the 100-meter dash is on a Sunday. And he's convicted that Sunday is the Lord's day and that he ought to be in corporate worship and not racing. And so he decided not to run, and he gave up his chance to medal in the Olympics in the 100-meter dash so that he could go and participate in corporate worship. Is that extreme discipleship, or is it just basic discipleship? It looks like the businessman who can make big money on a job if you only skirt a few ethical considerations, but decides he'd rather lose his job than offend the Lord. It looks like the mom who walks away from a career she loves to care for children 
in spite of the fact that what others might think of her of wasting her talents and in spite of the financial difficulties that come with that decision because she believes that's what the Lord wants. It looks like the woman who makes the incredibly hard decision to be the single mom because her husband is abusive and lecherous and unrepentant and she wants to protect her children so her household will honor the Lord. It looks like the couple who stays together and chooses to love one another despite a loss of all feeling for one another because they know it will honor the Lord. It looks like the guy who God blessed with more money than most of us have ever known and his first question is, what does the Lord want this money spent on? And then he happily gives it away. It looks like the family is constantly assessing how they might give more of their money, more of their time, more of their emotional energy to their church, i.e. the people, the body of Christ, and to missionaries, rather than figuring out how they might accumulate more for themselves. It looks like the guy who speaks up about Jesus among his friends and family and neighbors, no matter what happens to his reputation among people or no matter how awkward it might get. It looks like the family who gives up their time and comfort to reach out to others regularly. It looks like the pastor who preaches the word in season and out of season, who doesn't pull his punches no matter what others might say about him. It looks like the young person who walks away from the comforts and familiarity of the U.S. and the American dream to go into missions work. It looks like the martyr who suffers greatly and loses his life for preaching the gospel in a hostile country. You see, what basic discipleship looks like is the person who has the settled conviction that my children and my free time and my job and my money and my reputation and my life all belong to Jesus, all of it, and may his will be done. That's what it looks like. Let me be clear, this isn't the posture of the mature disciple only. This is the posture of the heart for anyone who wants to be a disciple. Yes, you can and you will grow and mature in this commitment, but you can't mature in a commitment you don't have in the first place. Which leads to our second consideration. Counting the cost is required before becoming a disciple. Hear that? Counting the cost is required before becoming a disciple. Look at verse 28 through 32. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Listen, here's the point. You're not going to go out and start a project like building a building without making sure you have enough money in the budget to finish the building. You're going to count the cost of the building. If you don't, you're a terrible businessman. Some of you know those people. Some of you have been those people, right? You started a project you didn't have the money to complete, and the project gets halfway done, and everybody's like, hey, what happened? You didn't count the cost. You didn't think it through. You didn't spend time considering, this is what it will cost me. Am I willing to pay it? Do I have what it takes to pay that cost? He goes on. A second example. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? 
And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In other words, you are a stupid king if you have a smaller army and you see a larger one squaring off against you if you don't think through whether or not we have the ability to win this war. And if you don't, when you recognize you can't win it, you send out a delegation to barter terms of peace. Because you've counted the cost. That's what great generals do, incidentally, before they enter battles. They count the cost, and they make sure that they know they can win the battle before they're willing to pay the cost of all of those people's lives. That's what good generals do anyway. And what's Jesus' point? You better count the cost before you follow me. You see, the crowds are huge now. Like I said, they're at all-time highs. They're excited about Jesus. They love him. They love what he's doing for them. Nobody's ever done anything for them like Jesus does. Nobody's ever taught like Jesus teaches. Nobody has ever healed like Jesus heals. Nobody's ever fed them like Jesus feeds them. Crowds are gathering that are massive around Jesus. The excitement of the crowd alone is enough to cause you to go and see what it's like. You know that what that's like. You see a huge crowd gathering. You instantly want to be there to see what's going on. Well, these people wanted to be there. This was a huge event. This guy was big time. I need to know more about him. I like what I hear from him. I like what he's doing. I can get benefits from him. Maybe he'll heal me of my disease. Maybe he'll give me some of that bread and fish. There's all kinds of things I can get from him. And as the crowd gathers to do this, what does Jesus do? Does he tell them, come forward right now. Walk the aisle. Raise your hand. Come down here and pray the prayer. The buses are waiting. Don't worry. You won't miss them. If you just come pray this prayer right now, you'll be in heaven. Does he take his disciples and say, listen, now's the time. The crowds have already gotten ready. They are primed. Here's what I need you to do. I need some of you to walk down the aisle just to prime the crowd so that people feel comfortable doing it. And then, then I'll give the call incessantly over and over as we play just as I am a hundred times. And at some point, they will finally come. No, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus does something that's actually quite startling. Jesus tells the crowds to count the cost. He says, consider this. Weigh it out. You might like me. I might seem popular to you right now. I might be seeming like I'm doing the right thing. You might want to be one of my disciples, but you better weigh it out because I'm not asking for part of you. I'm not giving out benefits. I am asking you for your whole life. Are you willing to walk away from everything? Following me is not cheap. It's incredibly costly. I'm not here dispensing cheap grace to people who would like to pick up a little forgiveness here and a little forgiveness there. I'm not out here doling out a little afterlife here and there to whoever wants it. I am telling you that I am the Lord. I am the Savior. There is no hope apart from me. If you want to come after me, you better count the cost because it's going to cost you everything. Think about it. Don't respond because you're excited. Don't respond because you feel good about me right now. Don't respond out of some base emotionalism. Don't respond because the crowd seems primed and pumped and excited. Stop and think and consider and count 
and weigh and ask, do I want to pay that cost? So don't emotionally respond. Don't make a decision that seems good to you in the heat of the moment. Think it through. That's interesting, isn't it? People often ask me why I don't do altar calls. Why don't you do them? Let me, let me say that I don't avoid altar calls because I, I think that it's wrong for a pastor to challenge a crowd to respond in faith to Jesus and believe. I actually think it's wrong if a pastor doesn't call to a crowd to respond in faith in Jesus and believe. I'm not saying it's wrong to challenge a crowd that way. I'm not even saying it's wrong for a pastor to say, you know what, if you believe, come forward, we'd like to pray with you. That's fine. So why don't I do it? My concern about altar calls is that when they were historically started by one Charles Finney in the 1800s, so you know that's when they were started. They didn't exist in the history of the church prior to that. He's a man who also denied original sin and penal substitutionary atonement and had all kinds of other problems. But he started them. He called them constituted means. What did he mean by that? So well, there's the means of grace. You preach the word, you pray, you ask the Holy Spirit to work. But then there's constituted means. Those are the means we can come up with. Those are the gimmicks and emotional tricks that we can use to guarantee the kind of response we want. And he actually said that if, if I'm given the right conditions, the right music, the right crowd excitement, and I use my voice the right way, and I carry on the right way, and I use primers, which he used. You know what primers are? He called it the anxious bench, not the altar call, but that's what, you know what a primer is? You know what these evangelistic crusades, a lot of times they send people down the aisles? They're called primers. They're not coming to be saved. They're people who are pre-planned in the audience, and they're told, you come down so that the other people feel good about coming down. He said, if I use these, I can guarantee the decision that I want. See, preachers will often preach a message, start playing music, have long, drawn-out calls for people to come forward, sending primers down the aisle so that you feel okay about it. And that's a kind of emotional manipulation that I object to. I object to that kind of emotional manipulation. I mean, how many times have you heard a preacher during an altar call say, I know your heart may be warmed concerning Christ. I know you may be excited and feeling emotional right now, but please, stop and count the cost. You know what? Get on the bus and go home. Think about it. Go talk to your pastor this week. Go find a friend to talk to about it. Give this some thought. Count the cost. Jesus requires your whole life. Really think this through and consider whether you want to pay the tremendous cost of discipleship. You don't hear that much, do you? That's what Jesus is doing to this crowd right here. See, I always believe we need to give the call to repent and believe. I'm happy to talk to you after the service if you want to follow Jesus. In fact, I, I'll invite you even now, if you're someone in here who needs to look to Jesus in faith and be saved, come talk to me after the service. I'd love to talk to you about that. But I'm not going to use any tricks or techniques to manipulate a response out of you. Jesus isn't looking for phony disciples. He isn't looking for emotional response. He's looking for people who think it through and decide that he's worth the cost of their lives. You need to count the costs.
And you need to know there's, the cost is a long-term commitment. This isn't a momentary decision. This isn't a short-term commitment. If you have counted the cost, you've made sure that you have enough to pay. You must believe Jesus is worth it. You believe that he's greater than all else. And you must persevere in that belief. You must be able to say, even if Jesus costs me everything, he's worth it. I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve hell. I know that Jesus is my only hope. I know that he's my great treasure. And so I will renounce my life and follow him because he's worth it. I don't know how I'll keep this commitment, but I will trust God to help me keep it. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, if you don't count the cost and make a real commitment to Jesus, you may end up being a false disciple. It's not popular to talk about this, incidentally, and it's not making me happy to read it myself and talk about it. But you may end up as a false disciple, and that's the third consideration here. False disciples are useless to Jesus. That's a strong term, I know. False disciples are useless to Jesus. Look at verse 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? You see, salt is great, right? You get the salt, and, but if the, if, the, if the flavor of salt, if the saltiness has been leached out of it, which doesn't happen in our current table salt, but did happen with their salt, if the salt flavor gets leached out of it, it's useless, and its saltiness, how shall its saltiness be restored? It can't be restored. It's of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, I want you to stop and consider this. Jesus tells us that we're to be the salt of the earth, right? The light of the world and the salt of the earth. That's the call to disciples. Now he's picking up on that idea of being the salt of the earth and saying, hey, but there's some of you who might think you're the salt of the earth, but you're not salty, i.e., you're useless. You're the kind of disciple who has not counted the cost. You're not willing to give up anything for me, really. Maybe a few things, but not your whole life. And you're useless to me. You're phony disciples. You're not the real deal. In fact, he goes on to say, that you're of no use, either for the soil or the manure pile. Listen, manure has use, and you ruin it. It's pretty strong, isn't it? Is that what you expect a preacher to say to a large crowd? There's a usefulness to manure that many of you are ruining. That's what Jesus is essentially saying to this crowd. You ruin dung. There's a punch in the mouth, huh, if you're following Jesus. But say, I don't, have any, I don't have any use for these kind of disciples. These sort of come along, get what benefits they can, grab the scraps off the table, look for a little free time for their sin, want to get out of hell free, aren't interested in giving me their life. No use for those kind of disciples want to talk about me, want to tell everybody about me, but are never willing to let it cost them. No use for them. They aren't my disciples. Hear that? They aren't my disciples. They're like useless salt. 
they ruin dung. Francis Chan, who some of you have heard of, who's a friend of our ministry and, and particularly Radius, um, I know through that ministry one time we were at a um, pastor's event um, where he was speaking, and he's, he's, he's written some books people have heard of anyway, but he, he was speaking about this little parable here, and he, he made the comment, he says, you know, it's, it's interesting how we think about church growth methods in Christianity. He says, what happens in church growth is, and he, he took a, a piece of paper out and he put it on a table, I'm not going to do it for you, and he took a little bit of salt and he poured a little bit of salt on the piece of paper. He said, see that, that's the real disciples. That salt on that piece of paper, just that little bit of salt, those are the real disciples, those are the ones who've counted the cost, those are the ones who are following Christ, and then he has this huge can of salt and he says, this is what we do in church growth. We find a way to get all this salt into the building. And he just takes a can and pours it over the good salt. And he says, and then we walk around and say, look at how successful my church is. Look at how successful it is. Look at all the useless salt that I gathered. Because I used methods that manipulate people emotionally. That get them in the door and provide them their felt needs but never call them to real discipleship. Jesus is looking for followers, disciples, those who look to him as Savior and Lord. He's looking for those who say, Jesus is worth it. I know what the cost is, and I see that the reward is greater still, and I will pay. He wants disciples who are like the man who found a treasure hidden in the field, and in his joy went and covered up that treasure and sold all that he had so he could buy that field. See, he wants disciples who sing, Jesus, I my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known, yet how rich is my condition, God and heaven are still my own. Let the world despise and leave me, they have left my Savior too. Human hearts and looks deceive me. Thou art not like them untrue. Oh, while thou dost smile upon me, God of wisdom, love, and might. Foes may hate and friends disown me. Show thy face and all is bright. Go then, earthly fame and treasure. Come disaster, scorn, and pain. In thy service, pain is pleasure. With thy favor, losses gain. I have called thee, Abba, Father. I have stayed my heart on thee. Storms may howl and clouds may gather. All must work for good to me. Haste thee on from grace to glory, armed by faith and winged by prayer. Heaven's eternal days before thee. God's own hand shall guide us there. Soon shall close thy earthly mission. Soon shall end thy pilgrim days. Hope shall come to glad fruition, faith to sight, and prayer to praise. Let me, let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider the word of your Son, as we consider the great cost of discipleship, that we 
we'd count the cost and be willing to pay it, that we would see Jesus as our great reward. That we would sing, Jesus, I have my cross have taken. That we'd follow after you. That you would be honored. I pray for those who don't know you, haven't ever looked to your son, Jesus, in faith. Who recognize their sin and their need for a savior. I pray that they would look to you even now. They would pursue your son and walk after him now and be saved. Pray to open their eyes so they would see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Pray for those, Father, who are just pursuing Jesus as sort of a side gig, who see him as a nice add-on to their life. I pray they would count the cost. They would recognize that Jesus gets them all or he doesn't want them at all. They would come to him in faith. They would be saved. They'd be woken from their slumber and their deception. Father, I pray for those of us who believe, who struggle constantly with this long-term commitment and walking with your son, who struggle with the world and the flesh and the devil calling us to stop paying the cost and start looking to them rather than your son. We, I pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us and keep us. I pray this for the name of your son, Jesus, in his name, amen.